When I was in college at Drake University, I was interested in biology, so I took a number of biology classes, and there was one professor that I got to know, and uh, she was a committed Darwinian evolutionist, and she was pretty hardcore. She was committed to, to that theory, and uh, she was a very nice woman, but she was very, very strong about what she believed. And I remember during one of the classes, uh, she made this comment. She said, if evolution is correct, people are highly evolved monkeys who are filled with snakes. So this was her comment, that if evolution is correct, people are highly evolved monkeys who are filled with snakes. And when I thought about that, I thought, she's right. If this theory is correct, there is no God. God is not the creator. Darwinian evolution is true. It explains the creation of life. Then we are highly evolved monkeys who are filled with snakes. And in that comment, she was trying to she was trying to account for the apparent evil that people do. So she, she threw in there that we are filled with snakes. And when I heard her say that, I thought, is there a more depressing view of humanity in the world? I mean, is it even possible to, be more, to have a more depressing view of the human race that we are highly evolved monkeys who are filled with snakes? And this morning, we are going to be exploring the question, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? And this is a significant question because if God is not the creator of the universe, then people are highly evolved monkeys who are filled with snakes. But if people are created in the image of God, then every person on the planet who's ever lived or will ever live is eternally valuable. That they have been created in the image of God and therefore they are worthy of dignity and respect regardless of what they do. Now because sin has entered the world, the, the image of God in human beings has been marred but it has not been lost. And so that means that people, if this is true that God created man in his image, men and women in his image, then people are eternally valuable. But what does that even mean? What does it mean for people to be created in the image of God. And I would suggest there are four truths in our passage that help us understand the doctrine of the Imago Dei, the image of God and man. Number one is that people are distinct in creation. To be created in the image of God means people are distinct in creation. This is the overarching observation we cannot miss. That people are created in the image of God and are therefore distinct in creation. Verse 26 Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. The us in verse 26 is a reference to the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us, the Godhead, there was a divine dialogue that took place at the creation of man. God did not say, let there be people, and there were people. That's not what it says. When God created light, he said, let there be light, and there was light. But when it came to people, the creation of people, there was a divine dialogue where God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So our most fundamental identity as human beings is that we have been created in the image of God. We are not highly evolved apes filled with snakes. We are not grown up germs, as one prominent philosopher says. We are not accidents, that's not what we are. You know, one time I was talking with a dad and he said, Dan, do you see that little girl walking around? I said, I said yeah, and he goes, um, that was our oops baby. Have you ever heard that, that phrase before? That was our oops baby. And a few minutes later, <laughs> there's a little boy walking around. He goes, Dan, do you see that little boy? I said, yeah. He goes, that's our other oops baby. <laughs> I said, sir, do you know how babies are made? Do you understand how this process works? And we know what people mean when they say an oops baby. We know what that means. But in reality, everyone has been created by God. There, there are no accidental people. Everyone has been created by God and for God. Psalm 139 says, 
For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together where? In my mother's womb. God, he, God uses human agents in the creation of new people, new image bearers. But it is God who puts people together in the womb. And so you should look at, when you look at yourself, I don't know how you think about yourself, but when you look at yourself, it is right and good to say, I have been created in the image of God. Because we can notice everything that's wrong with us, we can notice our flaws, and we can notice all kinds of things we don't like. But when you look at yourself, you should say, I have been created in the image of God. And when you look at other people, you should observe about them that they have been created in the image of God. So first, it means that human beings, people are distinct in creation. Second, it means that people are sacred. To be created in the image of God is to be distinct and it is to be sacred. To say people are sacred is to say that people are valuable, eternally valuable, and therefore they should be treated seriously. When we engage with one another, there, there needs to be a sobriety in our thinking that this person is not a, it's, they're not just a nuisance to us, they're not just funny to us, they're not just an opportunity to have fun or whatever it is. They have been created in the image of God, and so there needs to be a sobriety in our thinking as we relate to one another. And it is the doctrine of the Imago Dei, the image of God in man, that establishes the truth that people, persons, are sacred. Persons are sacred. So why are people sacred? Well, they are sacred fundamentally because they've been created in the image of God. Now, what does it mean to be a person or personhood? What does that even mean? Well, the understanding, our understanding of personhood is derived from the scriptures, it doesn't just say, and a person is X. It doesn't say that. You have to derive it from the scripture. So I'm going to give you several characteristics of personhood, what it means to be a person distinct from creation. <clears throat> First, people are eternal. To be created in the image of God means that you are eternal, not eternal in the past. You came into being in your mother's womb at conception. So you're not eternal in the past, but you are eternal in the future. Do you know that every person who's ever lived right now it, they still exist. They still exist. And they are conscious. They exist either in eternal glory in the presence of God or in eternal torment in hell. They exist eternally. This is part of being a person is that you exist eternally into the future. <clears throat> you will never go out of existence. It is a serious thing to be a human being. Secondly, people are rational. People are rational. Sometimes we're not rational enough, but in theory, we are thinking people. We are people who process information. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. In Genesis chapter 2, God gives Adam work to do. So if people are to subdue creation and rule over the earth and do work... You have to be able to think. You are a reasoning person. You have a mind. Third, people are self-aware and self-conscious. People are self-aware and self-conscious. There is a material you, a physical you, and there is an immaterial you, a spiritual you, an inner you. And so you cannot reduce a human being down to simply the material. There's something that goes beyond that. Something I know about all of you because you're a human being is that there's an inner you. There is a self-conscious I, me, that exists. 
And you have that running dialogue all the time. This is part of being created in the image of God. Animals are not spiritual. They're not spiritual. They are conscious, but they're not self-conscious. There's no inner I. They live according to their instincts. And what, what we do all the time as human beings is we try to make people, or we try to make animals look like people. I was reading about this uh, person. If you want to go to the next uh, slide here, uh, this is a, a horse and a suit. This is a real suit. And I thought, how much time do you think that took to create this suit? But you know what? The horse doesn't care at all about the suit. It makes no difference. His, his self-confidence has not increased because of his, his suit. He's not, I look good. You know, I, look, I look real good. That's not what's happening here. Maybe it makes us look more like, it makes the horse look more like a quote person or something, but not at all. Or here's a baby hippo. This is a real picture of a baby, a little baby hippo, that cute little thing. Or you have a hippie dog. Here's a, here's a hippie dog. Um, you have a grandma dog, a grandma golden retriever dog. And then here's a middle-aged, sophisticated woman dog or whatever that is. And so like you people, we do this stuff all the time. And we, what we do is we project personhood into creatures, but, peop- but animals are not people. They're not people. They- we are distinct from creation. That doesn't mean we should treat animals poorly. Proverbs 12.10 says the righteous cares about his animal's health, but they're not people. Next, people are relational. People are relational. God has created us with a deep need and capacity for relationship. We are designed to know God and to worship God, and we are designed to know each other. It says that God made them male and female, male and female. God created us for himself, and he created us for one another. This is why we're able to speak. If you could not communicate, then you couldn't have meaningful relationships. God is a speaking God. In verse 28, it says, and God said to them. You see in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are speaking with God. We are created to know God and know one another. And we find our lives primarily in relationship. I mean, what is most fulfilling and satisfying about life comes down to our relationships. That is the most fundamental aspect of satisfaction we will ever experience. I mean, think about who you are. Think about who you, who are you? You you can't even answer that question apart from relationship. Every identity reference point that exists, every identity reference point that exists is relational. It is relation, relational. If there's no God, what are you? you? I mean, you're just a random set of atoms who accidentally came into existence. You have no intrinsic meaning or purpose. But if you're created in the image of God, then you, you've been created for God. And that relationship between you and God is the most fundamental relationship you have. Or think about your identity in your relationships with other people, your identity as a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife, a brother or a sister. And all the other characteristics about identity, about being smart, what what does it mean to be smart? Well, that has a relational reference point. Sometimes you'll walk into the room and you will be the smartest person in the room. And sometimes you walk into a different room and you are the dumbest person in the room by far. That's just the way that this works. Or what does it mean to be tall or short, rich or poor, attractive or not attractive? These all have relational reference points. And this is because we are designed to find our lives in relationships. When you know Christ and you love Christ with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength, and you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you have deep, meaningful friendships, you can endure anything. You can walk through anything in life. 
But when you do not have meaningful friendships with other people, even having material goods, even if life is good on the surface, you feel pretty empty. You feel really empty. Harvard recently did a study on loneliness in America. And this is what they found. They found that 61% of young adults feel seriously lonely. Like, like and the way they define that is that their loneliness is contributing negative, negatively to their life in a significant way. 61% of young adults feel seriously lonely. 51% of mothers with young children feel seriously lonely. 36% of all Americans feel seriously lonely. And when you feel lonely, life is very difficult. And that is because we've been created to be a human being means we are, in our very core, our very nature, relational. Next, people procreate. People procreate. Part of being created in the image of God is that we procreate. This is before the fall. Before the fall, we see this to be uh, the design of God, and so it would be safe to assume that Adam and Eve had no trouble conceiving at all. Now sin has entered the world, so that creates uh, all kinds of complications in procreation, but it is true that people procreate. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Make babies. Now, verse 28 is one command we've obeyed really well as a church. Like, this is something we've got down. We know how to make babies. And in verse 28, in verse 28, you need to notice that the first words from God to man are words of blessing. You want to know what God's posture is towards Adam and Eve? They are words of blessing. What does God do? Verse 28, God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. This is God's good word. And see, part of the blessing of God is the institution of marriage. We're going to get into that in the coming weeks. But it's the institution of marriage where God creates Adam and Eve and he fits them together. He puts them together in the covenant of marriage. And from this union, this covenant, come children. This is the very design of God from the very beginning. That a man is, is fully in the image of God. And a woman is fully in the image of God. And through their union together in the covenant of marriage, they image God in a special way. This is why marriage is sacred. It's sacred because it's about the image of God in the world. It's about the fundamental identity of human beings. So to tamper with what marriage is, is to damage the image of God in the world. To damage or diminish the glory of God in the world. And from this union come children. I mean, think about what a glory that is. How do you image God as an image bearer? Through procreation. By making more image bearers. What a glorious reality. That that person, that person that is conceived in the womb bears the image of God. They are an eternal being. What a reality. This means that children are a tremendous blessing. Children should never be thought of as a drain on society or an inconvenience. I think it disparages the image of God when, when parents or people, they, they talk about kids in a really negative way. And I think to myself, kids are like the best thing we have. I mean, what a gift that God has given us. But when people do not worship God, when they don't believe God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, they often devalue children. The way that sin works is that it always rolls downhill. 
and it crushes the least or the most vulnerable. Sin, all, the way that it works in society, it rolls downhill and it crushes the most vulnerable, which are children. That kids, kids, they bear the brunt of sin more than anything else. And when people do not worship God as the creator, they devalue children. David Hogg, I don't know if you know who he is, but uh, he tweeted this week, a lot of controversy over it. He said, like me, I'm never planning on having kids. I would much rather own a Porsche and have a, a Portuguese water dog, whatever that is, in Golden Doodle. Long term, it's cheaper, better for the environment, and will never tell you that it hates you or ask you to pay for college. Now, there's a lot of irony in that tweet uh, from David Hogg we could get into, but we don't have time uh, to get into that. But my first thought was, David, you don't know how expensive kids are. A Porsche is insufficient to pay for children over the course of time. They're much more expensive than that. But I thought, what a, what a sad world it would be if people thought about kids as a financial calculation as if they're a financial calculation or a relational burden, as if people have children to make their lives easier and cheaper. That's that's not why people have children. I was studying the Greek word for children this week. Uh, It's it's kind of an interesting uh, word. It's the word technon, and what it means is uh, take all your money, which is kind of interesting. I just made that up, that's not true, but, but that's been your experience. You have kids and all of a sudden your finances, you're like, what happened to our money? So you don't have kids, you don't have kids because it's cheaper, that's not what happens. Rather, what happens is that because of the very nature of God, God is relational and sharing in his image, because of his incredible grace, he allows us to have relationships, to create people to create people who will live forever. And in these relationships, there is so much life and joy and blessing. And this is part of what it means to be an image bearer. An image bearer. I mean, think about what's going on in the womb of a mother. I mean, she is creating a person. It's like a superpower. It's incredible what, it, what is happening. And so this is part of being image bearers. Now, sin has messed that up. I understand that. But this is what we see from the very beginning. Next, people are male or female. People are male or female. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. God did not create androgynous, random human beings, That could be male or female or some other gender. That's not how God created the world. That's not how he created people. That part of our identity as a human being created in the image of God is that we are male or we are female. This is the world that God has made, that people are male or female. Scientifically, there's no doubt about it. Biology says there's no doubt about it. There are are two genders, male and female. A man cannot become a woman and a woman cannot become a man. We live in the world that God has made and we cannot create our own reality. And what's happening in our world right now with the transgender revolution that is just spiraling out of control, if you wanna understand what's going on as a society, what's happening is that it is just a pure, clear rebellion against our creator. The concept that that gender is just a social construct, that men can be women, women can be men, that you can be neither, you could be something else, you can be an animal. 
It is simply a rejection of the world that God has made. That's all that it is. It is an effort to reject God at the foundation of reality. Now, as Christians, when we come across someone or we see people who are experiencing gender dysphoria, which is what it means to be transgender, you're experiencing, tra- or you're experiencing gender dys- dysphoria, as followers of Christ, we are to have deep compassion for those people because they are made in the image of God. And they are worthy of respect and dignity. And because we love other image bearers, we need to love them enough to not join them in their delusion. It is a psychological disorder. And people who struggle with psychological disorders, the loving thing to do is not join them in their delusion. And so as Christians, if we love people, we must stand on the truth. There are... There is no love in lies. There is no such thing as love apart from the truth. So our heart, when we see people, when we engage in society, I know it gets really complicated, but our souls must love God and our neighbor enough to not join people in their delusion. We must be willing to speak the truth in love no matter what happens. If Christians do not speak the truth in love, there's only darkness in the world. Where will the light come from if Christians are silent? We cannot be silent. We must speak the truth in love. And see, the doctrine of the Imago Dei, it is the only firm ground on which human dignity can be built. We must, brothers and sisters, we must not underestimate the value of the Imago Dei in man, the image of God in man. This doctrine is so important because it is the only It is the only doctrine, it is the only firm ground on which human dignity can be established. If you move away from God as the creator, the self-existing creator of everyone and everything, you have no basis for human dignity. And this is not a hypothetical, this is not a hypothetical uh, uh, exercise, mental exercise. Just look at the world and look look at history. When people reject God as creator, Human beings will be devalued. There are a thousand examples of this, thousands of them. But Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, atheist, he said, man is a useless passion. It is meaningless that we live and it is meaningless that we die. And everything in between, you keep reading him, everything in between, your birth and your death is also meaningless. And he's right if God is not the creator. There's no purpose for existence. Vladimir Lenin who led the Russian Socialist Communist Revolution. This is what he said in 1920, about 100 years ago. He says, what does it matter if three quarters of the world perish as long as the remaining one quarter is communist? Who cares, at the, t- at the time there are two billion people, who cares if 1.5 billion people die as long as the remaining quarter, 500 million, are communist? People are just cogs in a machine. The Nazis, they had a term, in German, which means life unworthy of life. And before the war in in World War II, Nazi Germany, in 1933, they, they required hospitals and doctors to report children and patients who had birth defects or were disabled so they could round them up and exterminate them in 1933. And it's because they were given the label life unworthy of life. And so they would kill them. 
And, and, and instinctively, we recognize the appalling behavior, this appalling behavior. It is unacceptable behavior, but why? Why? There's one reason. There's a fundamental reason that people are created in the image of God. This is why it is wrong. You throw away the creator. You have no reason to say human life is objectively valuable. And so what you do is you say no one is valuable or people have value on the basis of their utility. People are valuable because of their beauty, because, because of their strength, because of their wisdom, because of their money, because of their sexual appeal or whatever it is. And if people are valuable on the basis of their utility, then some people are more valuable than others. If you say you're valuable because of your strength, what happens when you get weak? If people are valuable because they're rich, what happens when they become poor? They lose their value. Their value is contingent on their utility. And so what you see in the world, when a world does not accept God as the creator, human beings will be devalued. In World War II, the Nazi ideology, 1939, to 1945 killed 85 million people less than 100 years ago. In Russia, in 1918 to 1956, in communist Russia, according to Alexander Stolzhenitsyn, the Russians killed 60 million of their own people. Mao Zedong, in the Great Leap Forward, 1958 to 1962, like my dad was a kid then, still alive, they estimated that they, that they killed, look at this estimate. It's 15 million to 55 million of their own people. And I, I was reading this estimate, I've heard this, and I was thinking about it. What, you know what that means? They have no idea how many people they killed. They have no idea because they don't value human life. In our own country, since 1973, we've killed over 60 million people in the womb. Why? Because they are, they are a life unworthy of life. They are devalued because they are not recognized as being created in the image of God. And see, when you throw away God as creator, you throw away people as valuable. But since the Imago Dei is true, brothers and, brothers and sisters, people are sacred. They are sacred. Number three, morality is objective. Morality is objective. Men and women are moral creatures. We live in the moral universe that God has created. In Genesis 1, 28, God gives five commands. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. Five positive commands. And in Genesis 2, one negative command. Don't eat from that tree. Stay away from that tree. Don't eat from it or you're going to die. So for people to be able to sin, it means that we're moral creatures. Rocks do not sin. The wind does not sin. Trees do not sin. Animals do not sin. When a lion eats lion cubs, which happens every day, it is gross. But it is not sin. It's not murder. When I was growing up, my family had a cat. Uh, the family cat was named Gatto. I don't know if I've, you've heard that before, but Gatto, the female cat. And Gatto had many lovers. I don't know what was wrong, but she had many lovers. And so she, every spring, she had a lot of kittens with different different men. Uh, she was prolific. <laughs> she was fruitful and she multiplied. And was I, are we supposed to look at Gatto as an adulterer? What's the answer? That's absurd. Come on. It's Gatto the cat. 
It's got to the, like, she's not an adulterer. She, she's, though she is procreating with lots of men, she's not sinning. She's not a moral agent. But men and women who are created in the image of God are moral agents. We are moral agents. And we are accountable to God. Human beings have a unique capacity, distinct from all creation. We have a unique capacity to understand right from wrong. We know what is right and we know what is wrong. And we have a capacity to do what is right and do what we know is wrong. I mean, just think about your life for a moment. I mean, you know I've done things that are really wrong. Where does that come from? You're a moral agent created in the image of God. But see, if God does not exist and he's not the creator then objective moral values do not exist. That the appearance of right and wrong is simply an illusion. It's not real. But we, you can't live that way because your, your moral senses recognize the difference between hurting a child and being kind to a child. Your, you, your moral instincts tell you it is actually wrong to hurt a child. And it is right to help a child. You know that to be true. You can't deny that within yourself. You see that as clearly as you see the world. But see, if God is not the creator, then humans are not moral agents. There is no objective moral, there is no objective right and wrong. Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche, the German philosopher who's an atheist, he said, in other words, he's talking about the implications of no God. In other words, ultimately, there are no moral facts. And therefore, we must give up the idea that core morality is true in any sense. Human beings may be incurably moral, But all we finally have, as Jean-Paul Sartre saw, is the bare, valueless fact of existence. Objective morality, therefore, is an illusion. But see, we have been created in the image of God, and we are moral agents. And see, this is what the battle is over. If God is the creator, he is also the rightful judge of every man, of every woman. So you must get rid of God as the creator, so you can get, get rid of God as judge. We want to live the way we want to live. Romans 1 verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. People know what is right and wrong from creation. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Though they, though they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the, the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. This is why the bat, there is a battle over the beginning. No creator God, no morality, no accountability, no judgment. If God is the creator, there's moral accountability and God is the judge. He is the judge of all men. There is a real right and wrong. Number four, people are worshipers. People are worshipers. I'm running out of time to get into this. But people are worshipers. We are created in the image of God. And we've been created for God himself. And part of our fallen nature since sin entered the world is that we believe we have been created for ourselves. And so lost men and women in the world Think, I have been created for myself. I've been created to pursue my dreams and my desires. And so the whole world that we live in 
Like if you go to high school, you go to college, you go to the workplace, you go to sport, you go to the athletic world, the creative world, the musical world, everyone thinks life is found in sex, in money, in fame, in our hobbies, in our families. And so we spend all, all of our life tweaking the dials on all of these different aspects of life, thinking I gotta get my sex life right, my money life right, my fame life right, my family life right, I just gotta get this all right and then I'll be truly satisfied. But you've not been created for sex. You've not been created for money. You've not been created for fame or hobbies. You've not even been created for your family. You have been created ultimately for God. To know and love and worship him. And because of our sin, we're cut off from God. This is the problem with the human race. We are cut off from God. And that is why Christ came. He came into the world to save sinners. He came to, to bring us back to God through the cross of Christ. That is why he died, paying for our sin at the cross, that we might be born again, that we might have a new life, that we might walk with him. And see, in Christ, we have been made new. Ephesians Chapter, chapter two verse, or chapter four verse 24 says, and to put on the new self. To be a Christian is to be new, to be born again, to have a new life. And to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. That you've been created to be like God. That what was lost in the fall, what was stolen from us in the fall, is restored in Christ. That we might bear the image of God himself in Christ. So what do we do with this information quickly? Number one, build your life on Genesis chapter one and two. It is the only foundation for human flourishing. We are to build our lives, our theology, everything on Genesis one and two. Now, with our remaining couple minutes, I gotta get into this question. Are the six days of creation literal 24-hour days? Last week, we said there are three views. View one, theistic Darwinian evolution. And if you want more information, listen to last week. Christians have good reasons to reject this view. View number two, it's what I call the old earth or old universe young life view. This position states that there's a gap between Genesis 1, 1 and Genesis 1, 2. So in those verses, verse 1, verse 2, there's a, a gap of billions of years. Or there are hundreds of millions of years of gaps between the days of creation. And there's a lot of subgroups, so I can't sum them all up, but there's a lot of subgroups. This position, the old the old earth, old universe, and young life view rejects theistic Darwinian evolution. And they affirm that God is the direct creator of everyone and everything. He did not use Darwinian evolution to create life or the diversity of life. They hold this view largely because the universe appears to be old. They say the, the universe looks old because it is old. And, and to be clear, this position is not an attempt to merge the Bible with Darwinian evolution. It is an attempt to merge the Bible with the apparent age of the earth. Because they say the world looks old, the universe looks old, therefore it is old. And we must make that compatible with the Bible. So here's the question. Is this view compatible with a biblical worldview? Can you believe that the world is old? The universe is old, like billions of years old, and that man is young? Well, I've wrestled with this question a lot. I've read a lot, thought a lot, talked to a lot of people, tried to process this the best that I can, and I think the answer is probably yes. I think it's probably, I think you can be biblically faithful and believe that the universe is old and that man is young. 
I don't believe that the age of the earth should be the test of Christian orthodoxy. Many people do that, and I think it's a mistake to do that. There are many who love Christ, they love the word of God, they stand on the inerrancy and sufficiency of the scriptures, and they believe the universe is old. Who are some of these people? Augustine, C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer, J.I. Packer, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, B.B. Warfield, Walter Kaiser, and there are literally thousands of others who have been stalwarts in the faith who believe that the universe is old and man is young. My argument is not because they believe it, therefore it's acceptable. My argument is that I think the Bible itself leaves the door open to this type of interpretation. And I think it is wrong to make this the test of Christian orthodoxy. Otherwise, John Piper, he's not even a faithful Christian, and I just don't think that is true. But this is not the position that I hold. Or most of the pastors, maybe all the pastors, hold uh, this third view, which is young universe, young earth, young life. This position holds that the days in Genesis 1 are six literal 24-hour consecutive days. That humanity, the earth, universe, and the, uh, they are young, likely less than 10,000 years old. Why do I believe this? The first reason is that young earth, young life, is the most straightforward reading of the text. It's the most straightforward reading of the text. That when you read Genesis, it just day one, two, evening, morning, It just is the most straightforward reading of the text. Genesis 20, verse 11. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. He made everything in six days. It just seems like it's the most straightforward answer. And if you were to ask Moses, Moses, are you trying to tell us that the universe is billions of years old? I don't think that's what Moses is trying to do in the text. Now, if you ask Moses the next question, Moses, are you trying to teach us that the universe is young? I don't think that's what he's trying to do in the text. I don't. But does Moses, if you were to ask him another question, Moses, do you teach us that the universe is young? I think the answer is yes. I believe that to be the case. Reason number two is that young earth, young life, makes the most sense of Adam and Eve, death, and the fall. It makes the most sense because the genealogies in the Bible, most of them go back to Adam and Eve as real people. And it keeps track of the people who lived. This is what happens. And so if Adam and Eve are not real, then when do do the genealogies become real? When do they become real? And I think it it detaches the Bible from reality. And what is sin and what is death and what is the fall? Everything gets confusing and you have to do a lot of acrobats or a lot of of moves in order to, to get out of the predicament you get yourself into. So as Christians, I think the right thing to do is reject Darwinian evolution, theistic Darwinian evolution as, a, as the mechanism that God uses. And then as Christians, I think we can fight a little bit over is the universe young or old. Next, almost done, application number two, people are proxies for God. So build your life on Genesis and people are proxies for God. A proxy is a figure that can be used to represent the value of something in a calculation. So what does that mean? What it means is that you cannot disconnect the way you treat people from the way you treat God. You can't do it. You cannot love God and not love your neighbor. All week long, I've just been staring at people, which is weird. I'm sorry about that. I'm just looking at people. You are created in the image of God. And I've been thinking, 
you are my opportunity to love God. You wanna love God? Love the people right in front of you. Love the people right in front of you. And as a church, you know what? We wanna be known for our love for God and our love for neighbor. And you cannot separate them. You're cruel towards people. You're not worshiping God. And so brothers and sisters, love God, love your neighbor. And it's an adventure when you just say, how do I love God? How do I treat the people right in front of me? And just see what God does. Even when they're annoying you. When so, I was talking to someone this week and they were just annoying the heck out of me. They were saying stuff that wasn't true. They were bringing up all kinds of things that weren't true. And I was like, God, this person bears your image. And here's my opportunity. I'm gonna love them by your grace as an act of worship to you. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you have saved us, not because of our works, but because of your grace. I pray that by your grace, we would build our lives on your word and not according to the world. Help us to sense, Lord, how serious it is to deal with people created in your image. Help us to love people as an act of love for you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.